This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers. We need to put the voice of the customer in the ear of the human. So every client I've ever worked with, we've had senior executives and then through the organization call lost customers. Not to beg them to return or to get a 10 on a survey, but to simply say what happened. That's the voice of Jean Bliss. She is the president of Customer Bliss and arguably the godmother of the customer experience movement. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. Hey there, I'm Michael Momsen. We're absolutely thrilled to have Jean on the show today. She arguably is the founder of the Chief Customer Experience Officer title and the movement best-selling author is one of the founding members of the Customer Experience Professional Organization. So you're in for a real treat with this episode. Yes, Jean Bliss is the real deal. She headed up CX at organizations like Microsoft, at Land's End, at Mazda, at Allstate and a number of other corporations. And today we talked to her about her new book, Would you do that to your mother? We unpack the practical lessons from real case studies that she's researched and how to treat your customers in a way that would make your mum proud. We started off by asking her, what are the four main lessons from the book? So the first chapter is called Be the Person I Raised You to Be. This is all about enabling your employees to thrive and creating an environment where they can bring the best version of themselves to work. So often companies hire people and then they lock them in, they block them, they prevent them from, you know, doing what they're really able to do. They don't raise the bar on their ability to be innovative and and they they lose a lot of good people. So that's the first big chapter. The second one's called Don't Make Me Feed You Soap. Um, (laughs) And this is about getting rid of the things that we've all experienced as customers. You know, what's interesting is, In the last page of the book, my gratitude page, I actually said, I'm grateful for the lousy customer experiences that I've had because it's what connects all of our humanity in many ways. (laughs) (laughs) Put up your Duke's moments, you know, waiting four hours for the cable guy or the power goes out and nobody communicates, you know, all of these things that define our lives. The next big chapter is called Put Others Before Yourself, which is a paradoxical way to grow and what most leaders don't understand, which is... In order to achieve your goals, you need to let others and enable others to achieve theirs first. I call it no strings attached growth. And then the last chapter, the last big chapter is called take the high road. You know, we inadvertently create imbalanced relationships with customers, nickel and diming, gotcha moments, fine print, those envelopes from the bank with all kinds of crazy stuff in them. And, you know, all of these things that really create a lack of trust. You know, why do they still chain pens to the bank? for example, you know, (laughs) you give them all this money. And then the last big chapter is called stop the shenanigans and it's a quiz. And so there are very, very many, very deliberate elements in the book, which we can talk about in a minute, but the stop the shenanigans quiz is a summary of the 32 main case studies. And at the bottom of each of them is a make mom proud ometer, a little evaluation to kind of see how you're doing operationally in each of these dimensions of goodness. At our company rated, one of our core values actually is around building things that pass a mum test. So, you know, with this bit of software, can my mum use this without training? And so your sort of mum tests throughout really resonated with me. 
And I like the example that you have of, would you tell your mum that you're going to come around to lunch within a four-hour window like the cable guy gives us? <laughs> and it's just a wonderful way to sort of humanize these customer experience processes that we build and, you know, how we think about our team engaging with customers. I know it's early and the book's just launched, but, you know, I'd love to hear any uh, examples of where this sort of comes to life using this sort of mum test. Well, I guess what I'd say is that a lot of people are have said to me that they've actually asked a question like this for a long time. In fact, I'm going out to Humana in a couple of weeks and they've been asking the mom test. But what I'm doing here is giving them an operating plan to put it into practice and broken down into these four categories of our lives as customers. You know, and I guess what I'd say is there's 32 case studies in here and over 85 companies cited. And these are the Make Mom Proud examples. And what we built that you may know also is a website called makemomproud.com where people can post a picture of their mom and what they're doing to make her proud in business. So we really want to create a movement around this. And to your point, after people read the book, want them to be inspired to go out and start posting. And it's one simple action. You know, you don't have to change your whole company. I'll say you're you're on brand for our podcast, which is, you know, we want to have a chat to great leaders in this the field of customer experience, of which, you know, you are at the sort of very top of that list. But then not only just have all this conversation and good ideas and good theories, but actually walk away with something really practical and something really tangible to do. And so I love how you bring that to life. Well, yeah, I mean, I was a practitioner for about 25 years before I wrote my first book. And that's the, you know, the sniff test for everything I do, which is Is it going to live in the underbelly of the organization? Because that's where, you know, you can have all the greatest tactics on the planet, but customer experience lives and breathes in the relationships and the underbelly of the silos. So I'd like to dive into each of these chapters one at a time, because I think there's a really great lesson from each of them. So the first one, be the person I raise you to be is about enabling employees to to thrive. What are some of the things that stop that from happening? And and what can we do to solve that? So... What's interesting is the first thing is about hiring people and often, especially what we know in economic times where there's a boom, we're filling the proverbial butts and seats. You know, we're putting people in seats and organizations aren't also really deliberate about the values of who they're going to hire. They're looking at technical skills. What we know about these organizations is they hire the human behind the resume. So there's a great case study in there around about a company called PALS sudden service, a hamburger and hot dog stand with 26 locations in Tennessee. And they put their employees through a 26 point psychometric survey to know who the human is. You know, what's, we want to hire the light behind the eyes. The other thing is really trusting the front line. Some of these lines I just love, would you let policy and the golden rule collide? And the mom quip there is, would you turn down your mom's warranty claim three days after warranty? Well, of course you wouldn't, but the front line we put in a position of being a policy cop and every time they have to say no, or that's the policy, it nudges them down a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, you know, so why don't we trust them instead with the lifetime value of customers and information and train and enable them and then celebrate the in the moment decisions about who to let it slide on or not, which is probably going to be a lot more informed and a lot more practical in terms of losing those really good customers. And also, guess what? When you raise the watermark for your employees, they will rise to the new level you give them. No, that's fantastic. I mean, some of the my favorite 
quotes actually from the book on this point was, you know, making hiring your most important decision and then giving the front line the ability to extend that grace. Can your policy basically bend by them using just compassion and humanity uh, about what's right for the human on the other side? I love those ethos and I'm sure, you know, our listeners will be, you know, high-fiving and, you know, we're, we're all on behind, you know, we're on board with this. Have you got any examples of where you've had to work with an organization or you've heard of an organization have to take this on board and, and sort of bring that to life where maybe they don't completely have it today. There's a couple of department stores in Australia that really come to mind on this. Actually, I had to get a refund on a thing and, you know, I ended up arguing with the guy about a policy and just sort of made me go, oh, like, why why is this still missing? <laughs> and if, if you were to work with an organization like that and maybe, and you have, like, how have we been able to change that? Well, you know, the interesting thing is frequently in the beginning of this work, people will say, this is about the front line. And they need to do better. And that's, it's not a, the front line is the receiver of leadership decisions and organizational decisions. And so what, when we make the transition and when we do transform, we have to start with the leaders and actually have the conversation with them about what they're doing and saying that's preventing the front line from being able to do this, you know, so be customer focused, but then the minute somebody makes that decision their hand is slapped or as opposed to making them a hero that's exactly right and so it really needs to start with the leaders and the ethos of what they will and will not do which is why that take the high road chapter is so critical are you going to grow by charging people a seven dollar bottle of water are you going to grow by limiting your call center people to only talk for x number of times and not giving them information make choices this is a very very specific path you go to the right and you're a certain kind of company and you go to the left and you're an everyday company. So, Jane, welcome to the Quickfire Round, the session where we ask you questions and you've got 10 seconds to answer. Michael and I are going to trade blows. Are you ready? Ready, ready, ready. All right, we'll start off with an easy one and I'll kick us off. Your time starts at the end of the first question. Jane, what brand do you look to as an example of great customer experience? Uh, four Seasons. Very good. And uh, what job did you learn the most in? Land's End and Microsoft. What skill are you terrible at? Pruning bushes. <laughs> Have you got some good gloves? <laughs> I'm just, I think it's boring. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Uh, what's the best advice you've ever received? Write like you talk. What non-work-related thing are you really into right now? Eating. (laughs) Anything in particular? Well, and reading a book that's not mine, for heaven's sake. Where do you go to upskill? Books, YouTube, podcast? uh, Where's your favorite places? Um, books and podcasts, probably. Mm Do you have a, a, a favorite podcast to recommend beyond, obviously, your your own? You know, I've just been I've been shopping around a lot of them. I'm I'm really into the ones about um, living your best life and having work life balance because I don't have any right now. So, <laughs> and then final question: What's your guilty pleasure? Eating artichokes with breadcrumbs, olive oil, and drinking of vodka. Yum. hopefully your husband's bringing that for you now what he's mixing some kind of drink I wish I had one 
All right, so let's jump into uh, to the next chapter, which, as you mentioned earlier, is don't make me feed you soap. And that's all about making it easy to do business with you. I know a lot of companies make it very difficult. It's obvious that we should be trying to remove this friction. And, you know, Michael and I have talked a lot about this on the podcast in the past about removing friction when dealing with customers. Yes. But now you can call it soapy moments. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what I did here also is identified. So each of the main chapters has eight case studies because there are things that, again, bind us in our human condition. Like you said, honor customers' time and their clock. You know, would you give your mom a four-hour window to wait for you in which you may or may not show up? Well, no, you wouldn't. What else? Take the monkey off the customer's back. I had to write about that one, right? You call a company for help or you tweet or whatever And the first thing you ask them, they give you homework. (laughs) It's no good, right? And so, how can we as business owners and business operators and people, you know, trying to design better experiences, how can we overcome those hurdles and make it easy for customers? You know, again, that's exactly the, the, the way the case studies and the book does. So, you've got 32 toolkits. Take the monkey off the customer's back. Each one of these prods you to do an audit on where you are. So, how many moments do you have where you're giving your customer homework? Go across the stages of your journey when they ask to open an account, when they, you know, the whole thing of, have you ever lost your luggage? Well, that is one thing of homework after another from the airlines. When you are having to sign up for a contract or let's say you don't deliver something, the first thing you do is you ask the customer to fax and send and all of these things. Ask your front line where the monkeys are because they're the ones having to give out the homework and they're the ones having to take the guff because the customers aren't happy about the homework. And there's so many examples where there's a lot of little wins. And, and I like how you talk about, you know, going through that and then also designing with the emotions in mind. You know, I think of a, an email that I received from my bank recently, which had a special offer. And I thought, oh, actually, that looks pretty good. I, I might give that a go. And I clicked on the email and then it sends me to a form. And the first thing it starts asking me for is like my name, my surname and my email address. And it's like, you just emailed me. Like, you know, all these details. Like, imagine if they'd pre-populated the form for me and I only had to do a couple of things. Um, and so, there's so many opportunities for this. We don't know you. You don't matter, right? I mean, it's just, Mm. yeah. I wanted to ask you actually about stories, uh, memorable moments and experiences. I've heard you talk about Daniel Kahneman a a couple of times in the past and, you know, he's written a lot about the value of creating memories. What can we do to make customers have more memorable experiences with us? Well, you know, what's interesting, memory exists on a number of planes inside of an organization. So, you know, a lot of times people will say, I can't deliver a great memory. I have to turn down that claim. Well, but at the front line, you are, maybe you're not in control of the claim, but you're in control of how you deliver the message, how much you honor the person and how much you leave them with their dignity and their emotions intact when they hang up the phone. You know, conversation A is essentially the customer hearing, you dummy, you don't know the rules. We're smarter than you you know, tough luck. Here's how much it's going to cost. I mean, the frontline person doesn't say that, but the delivery is policy, 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 rule, rule, rule. Or I'm so sorry this happened. How are you? Is everything okay? Let me walk you through what you can do in the future and how you might even be able to mitigate this situation. What else can I do for you? And then we hang up the phone and the which call would you rather have? Call one or call two? 
The next one we wanted to touch on was helping your customers achieve their goals and why it's important to focus on the customer goals first rather than your own business goals. So sort of working it backwards in effect. Are there any examples that come to mind of brands that have maybe done this really well? So that's in the Put Others Before Yourself chapter. And I mean, I love the story about Cole Han Shoes, where they, the guy who runs their experience lab there has basically said, we believe we're improving lives by imagining people's life in their shoes. So for example, they know, and you know, I think the men even over there have had to put on women's pumps. After a certain point in time, you guys probably have never worn pumps before, but after a certain point in time, the back of your legs starts hurting and then your knees start to kind of be uncomfortable. And because they started from the life, it inspired them to put sneaker gym shoe technology into women's pumps that you wouldn't have thought of if you hadn't thought about a woman standing on her feet for so long. Another great story that I adore in there because especially with customer experience being such a boon right now, listening and voice of customer frequently is translated to complaints and you know wiping out from the business the complaint. Now, that's going to only get you so far, and that doesn't necessarily start with the customer's life because the survey questions you ask customers are based on what you've boxed them into in the current state of what you've delivered to them. If you go past what they tell you and watch them and understand their life and follow them home, not in a creepy way, and see them in their natural environment and then learn more about their motivations, you can be inspired to do things. There's a wonderful story I love to tell about the Dorchester Hotel. It's a luxury brand hotel all around the world. And they started getting complaints about breakfast. So if you're an everyday kind of company and even a good company, you'll take those breakfast complaints and say, oh, here's three about bacon. Let's find another kind of bacon. Or here's two about the eggs. And you'll start tweaking and being really specific about the breakfast items. But what they listened for was not the breakfast items, but the breakfast habits. These people are on every kind of wackadoo diet. They're used to being catered to. And so because they got really, really close and really a great understanding of the customer, when you sit down at this particular restaurant in this hotel, the waiter says, there is no breakfast menu. Your desire is my command. What would you like for breakfast this morning? So while every other company might try to fix the menu, this company got rid of the menu. And I just think that is such a telling story. I want to touch on the Take the High Road chapter, which is really around establishing a more balanced relationship with a customer around those gotcha moments and the fine print surprises and where customers feel like they have to maybe go in battle with an organization. How do you think about businesses reframing this engagement? This is about leadership bravery. Mr. Branson and Raul Leal, the CEO of Virgin Hotels, for example, decided that they were going to walk away from so many of the behaviors that make us feel like we're had when we're in a hotel situation. You know, who among us doesn't feel creepy cracking open the bottle of $7 water, right? It's uncomfortable. And so their mini bar is called street pricing. So they actually have their managers go around with pads of paper and the pricing of what would cost for Snickers bar or bottle of water at the local market. And that's what they're charged for. You don't pay for Wi-Fi. Raul Leal says, you know, Wi-Fi is a right, not a revenue stream, which gets right to this whole point is while other companies are nickel and diming their way to revenue, 
these companies are stripping it out and earning growth through service, building in intuitive things like this Dorchester Hotel is, and doing the basics right. And when you don't do those things correctly, you do need to layer on to achieve your revenue goals. Virgin Hotels, they started in Chicago. They immediately were named the number one by Traveler's Choice in the Condonest Traveler. They became profitable very swiftly. So it's, again, good behavior growth. I love that. And I know from having many conversations with folks at various organizations, there'll be so many people that really believe strongly in that, right? And then they'll go back internally to champion that cause, whatever it may be. And it often has to show up as a customer experience business case. I'm sure you've lived through many of these and helped and it becomes the sort of hot topic of, you know, is there an ROI behind this stuff? You know, is there an ROI, especially if the leadership don't naturally make the decision around, they know that that's best for the customer and they just trust that the numbers will look after themselves. I think you have the visionary leaders, thankfully we're seeing more and more of them, but there will still be that business case ROI discussion that comes up over and over again. What's your view on that in the best way to sort of frame the ROI discussion? Well, I actually think the ROI discussion is important. And as CX leaders, we need to be able to know how to frame it. And something that I talk about in every single one of my books is honoring customers as assets. And you can actually run the numbers and watch your customer counts decline. You've got new customers who you're giving a better deal to than your existing customers. The example in the book leading up to the case study is a woman who actually was a very, very loyal customer to a pet store and grooming store in her neighborhood. And she went there many, many times, I think a six to $7,000 life value per year. And she missed her appointment by 10 minutes. They didn't bother to reach out to her. She picked up her cards and left, you know, she left. And you've got customers all around the world who are being nickel dime by that. And what I do with all my organizations that I work with is we do simple customer math. What are the new customers you brought in? Volume and value. You have to use whole numbers though. And the reason for that is when you use retention rates, you don't think about the human. So let's say you're a big company. We brought in 27,000 new customers, but you have to do the math and subtract in that same equation. But we lost 16,000 customers in that same month or quarter or year worth three times the value. So our net customer asset growth was X. And when you start putting it in those terms, leaders, it turns the money light on. It connects the point between customer experience and that there's an outcome to our actions and behaviors. This isn't just about our salespeople bringing in live ones. We are losing people out the bottom of that bucket because we're doing things sometimes to send them away. And then from there, we traverse the journey. I think this whole point of honoring the asset also becomes really critical. I've got clients who have lost $20 million customers by a $200 change fee. Why would you put yourself in that precarious position? You know, it's interesting that you use that terminology, you know, honoring the customer as the asset. It seems so simple and so logical. And I think all of us believe that and all of the listeners believe that. And yet, when I personally go out into the world, I don't feel like an asset very often. So, why do I have to deal with this when I think it's just really such an obvious thing to not? You know what? I'm as baffled as you are. You know, why are you in business if it's not to serve the people at the end? And of course, your employees, which is quite honestly why I wrote the book I did this way. It's like, come on, people. 
enough. You know, here's 32 basic things that we're all in advance. And again, the other thing that happens, you know, none of us go to work every day saying we're going to make it hard for customers to do business with us. We've got silos and quarterly reports and all of these things. I mean, most of the time companies are run with really good people, but the agendas and the pressure. And then the other thing that occurs inside of the middle of the organization is they're given key performance indicators, right? Targets and goals. My hypothesis, and I've seen it at work, is if you give someone a goal and it's about an operation inside the business, they're going to start building trellises and armor around it to be able to meet those goals. And a lot of those things include policies and rules and what people can and cannot do, and they're protecting. I really think a lot of that rigmarole happens inside of the middle of the organization. Many times leaders will have one idea about what's happening and somehow they're not behaving. They're not giving people the admirable examples, or maybe they're just not marketing back to the rest of the organization so that they come together. You know, the silos don't organically unite. That's one of the reasons why chief customer officers and CX teams and leaders have proliferated was to, is to bring people together. To your point, see the view of the outcome of all of us working separately. And all of us working separately is what falls on our laps as customers. We all fall into the Bermuda Triangle of the silos. And it sounds like also where it boils down to, it really does come from the top in terms of the leadership saying, this is something that we really want to invest in to allow the different silos to come together. And that way, targets are set correctly, objectives, the things that are celebrated, culture, hiring the right people, it all sort of comes together. You know, as CX uh, professionals and people who are passionate about customer experience, I think one of the things that we're seeing is that they don't necessarily always have to sit in the CX team. It can come from, you know, the sales team, often the finance team, you know, just different people who are passionately say, you know what, what we're inflicting on our customers here isn't right. <laughs> there has to be a better way, you know, now design teams, etc. My question is, in your experience, if you have a leadership team who's maybe on the fence about this stuff, you know, maybe still thinks it's a bit fluffy, maybe there's a bit of buzz now, other than the ROI case, What else have you found to be really useful when convincing others internally, especially leaders, to really kind of embrace this stuff? Well, so, you know, there's a variety of things we do. Typically with my clients, we start to build what I call a customer room, which is to bring the life of the customer together and out. You need to know the life to serve the life. And I also believe that journey mapping is only an exercise if it also does not bring change the language of leaders. So I put them through, I call it a Vulcan mind meld, where we really redefine the stages of the journey about based on the customer's goals and what they're trying to accomplish, which is the whole foundation for put others before yourself. But then in the customer room and in this process over and over and over again every month, we by stage of the journey, we'll walk them through what the customer's going through. We'll make them try to do it themselves, you know, do a be the customer thing. Break everything down that you make customers do and have people in your organization try to sign up for an account, try to download something, try to get your luggage back, you know, try to buy a ticket and then change it more than 24 hours later. The other thing is we need to put the voice of the customer in the ear of the human. So every client I've ever worked with, we've had senior executives and then through the organization call lost customers. Not to beg them to return or to get a 10 on a survey, but to simply say what happened and be quiet and listen, listen to the human. 
we then will play calls of customers. When I do validation sessions with customers, we do 14 or 15 customers at a time and we seat executives around the circle with the customers. So by stage of the journey, we say, what do you need? What's working? How do you feel? And those sessions in two and a half hours will suddenly have people banging their hand on the table and going, why are we doing this? Why are we, this? <laughs> why are we inflicting this on our customers? But, and, and you've got to have, again, it goes back to leadership bravery and having people be okay with their customers. And again, I think, and that's why the whole point of the book, you need to make business personal. Customer experience has turned into accounting. It's one more report out and more, one more red, yellow, and green dot, and one more set of five work streams that you're working on. We have to take the customer off the spreadsheet, off the dashboard, and really make it be about the life and put people in the life. Boom. <laughs> that was wonderful. That was really, really great. All right, Adam, what a show. As the young people say, pure fire. It was fire. Gene absolutely delivered. We're going to try and sum up our kind of key takeaways from that interview here. But I think really hit rewind, go back to, you know, 10 seconds in and listen to the whole thing start to end because... Yes, I've got the fire brigade out the front. (laughs) (laughs) The fire brigade emojis are going... Oh, that was fantastic. The first takeaway that I had was to treat your customers as assets. And so, it was really interesting. I think when we're talking about business and when we're trying to like design these programs, we kind of just like ignore this fact that, you know, customers are really valuable. They've invested their money and their time into dealing with us when there's plenty of other options out there, right? We're quite often dealing in a competitive space. And so, treating customers as assets really just kind of flips that style of thinking to making you want to serve them. Yeah, and protecting those assets, right? Like, it's almost like something that you want to cradle and love and make sure this thing uh, doesn't erode in value and like disappear yeah. and all that type of stuff. Like the word asset is something that you want to build up and, you know, be protective of. So, no, I, I love that one too. One thing that jumped out for me was how she really anchored things in designing things in reverse, you know, from the customer. So, not the company's objectives inward and then pushed out, but really thinking about the customer's objectives, what are they trying to get done and then designing everything in reverse. And I love one of her quotes, which is, you know, design with that emotion in mind. So, not only is it about trying to solve those challenges or help them get that thing done, but actually also considering the emotions in that design, which I thought was excellent. The next one came from a question where we were asking about, you know, what's stopping great customer experience from being developed? What are some of the barriers? And, you know, some of those examples that came up were things like silos and processes and procedures. But the solution really is to trust your frontline people to deliver great service and to enable them to go a little bit above and beyond and to extend a warranty grace period or to break the rules a little bit when it is good for the customer relationship and not kind of stick to these hard and fast rules processes, silos, you can't do this, you can't talk to this person, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, I love that. It's so simple and this is what causes all these horrible moments that we all dread when we're trying to deal with a business, but it's just so simple to fix. Totally. And I think, you know, it goes hand in hand with making hiring your most important decision as an organization, starting with the right service mindset, as Dennis Snow talked about. And then, of course, having the policies and the procedures, but then trusting the front line to be able to work intelligently to use grace when required and to really ensure that there's always this human to human interaction that's net positive. Maybe the last one to take us away is we spoke about ROI, we spoke about leadership, we spoke about 
how to bring this to life internally. And I really, a sort of broad takeaway for me was how she talked about some really practical tips to bring this story to life to leaders within your organization. And I sort of felt that it was two parts to it. One was sort of the heart of it, you know, which is that this is just the right thing to do. Would you do this to your mum? <laughs> and sort of bringing that to life, having customer room stories and what have you and sort of the heart of it. And that's really ideally what should be the core motivation. But there's also a really strong ROI behind it as well. And she gave some really great equations of how to build that ROI. And yes, there's studies out there and you should look at those, but ultimately build that ROI for yourself. So let's sum them up. The first takeaway was treat customers like assets. Number two was design your processes in reverse. So thinking about the customer's perspective first and what they want to get done as opposed to what you want them to do. Takeaway three is trust your frontline staff to extend grace and go beyond the simple processes and procedures. And the fourth one is be a customer experience leader yourself. Be a hero. (laughs) Tell the story. Bring it to life with heart. Bring it to life with ROI. Please join us and be a customer experience leader yourself within the organization. So, next time on Customer Experience Leaders, we have a very special bonus episode. We recently put the call out on LinkedIn for you, our listeners, to submit your questions to Jean Bliss herself. And so, we're using the opportunity that we had to speak with Jean to ask her all the top questions from the Customer Experience Leaders fans. So, that is next time on the show. You don't want to miss it. Until then, we'll speak to you soon. See ya. Thanks for listening. Customer Experience Leaders is produced by Rateit, the market leader in on-the-spot customer feedback. Rateit has a range of really great products which help capture feedback from customers when they're thinking it and not with some horrible gross survey later on. They utilize iPads in store and things like SMS to help you understand what your customers are thinking so that you can build better experiences. To find out more, head to rateitapp.com. That's R-A-T-E-I-T-A-P-P.com. This show is made in partnership with Wavelength Creative. This episode was produced by me and Christopher Lawson, who also edited and mixed the show. Our music is by Icolix, Peter Cooley and The Shrugs. Thanks so much for listening to this amazing interview with Gene Bliss. Next episode, we have a special bonus where we'll be answering your listener questions with the godmother of CX, Gene Bliss. Don't miss that in two weeks' time. We'll speak to you then.